Views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times at this time. Rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the beast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery, hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with new abolitionist and actionist Johanna Nilaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who helped combat it. January 13, 2015, our stories include Canada, has rejected the application of Kyle Adele Canty, who applied for refugee status on the grounds he was facing police racism and brutality in the United States. How is this important to the abolitionist movement? We'll discuss it. The governor of Maine recently showed his true bigoted colors by demeaning a racist statement he made, which was caught on video. You've got to hear this, and we're here to share it with you tonight, so you can. You might not have heard it, So we're here to remind you that last December, a former New York City narcotics detective, Stephen Anderson, testified in court that the New York Police Department routinely plants drugs on innocent people. He described this as a common practice, a quick and easy way for officers to reach arrest quotas. The practice is known among the NYPD as flaking. You can't hide from the truth, and you can't avoid the facts. We've got them here now in bold letters like they should be. The ultimate white privilege statistics and data post by J.B.W. Tucker. With all the hoopla and white privilege being flung around while claiming to be a white male Rosa Parks, we're just going to go ahead and drop the knowledge and the truth. Oregon is Ferguson. This week's rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is a man who spent nearly a decade in prison for the murder for murder, and as of September 2015, tasted freedom for the very first time in nine years. Bobby Johnson, 25, had his conviction set aside, and he was released into freedom. Johnson was sentenced to 38 years in prison for the 2006 murder of 78, a 70-year-old Herbert Pete Fields. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Reverend Samuel Ringold Ward, 1817 to 1866, a black abolitionist and minister. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. You can find archive podcasts at newabolitionistradio.blogspot.com. We invite you to join the conversation tonight by calling in at 1641-715-3660. Extension is 549-032-POUND. Just press star 6 and 1 to queue up from the conference line. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scott? What's up, Your Honor? 
Uh, Johanan is still at work, man. He ain't joined us yet, oh. so he probably in right, transit right. from his job. So you just stuck with me for now. <laughs> What's up, Scotty? How's my audio coming in? Do I need to make any adjustments compared to last week? Um, no, um, I'm not hearing okay. any feedback or anything like that. Just um, you know, you were leveling off as you were. Uh, given the uh, opening statement or the program lineup for tonight, so just try to keep your voice up. All right, will do, brother. Will do. I, I've been kind of stressed lately, man, and it keeps hitting me so hard. The whole twelve years of slave scenario, uh, you know, where Brother Solomon really didn't understand. I mean, slavery was right there in front of him. He was in the places where they had come up with this. Uh, elaborate scheme to use the exception clause in the North. And uh, there were people in the South still in bondage, complete bondage. And he was running around with his little fiddle and, or whatever the hell he was saying, just performing no. and being happy until his ass became a slave. Well, it's just, I see that right now. You, I mean, what did you say he didn't understand it? Or, or what did you say? No, he, he, he didn't, I guess he didn't take it. As serious he as didn't give a damn. Just put it, it that way. Affecting him immediately. It, he didn't give a damn because it wasn't affecting him personally. He wasn't personally in change and being uh, made to work out in the fields or catching a lash across his back. He 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 was like many a people today who don't give a damn. They and, and, and I don't give a damn. Yeah, they don't give a damn, man. Until. The system snatches up one of their children or grandchildren, or it hems them up in some kind of way, just like Solomon. Yeah, Solomon was all about making money. Let's get them dollars, y'all. Money, money. Makes the world go round. Yeah, I'm going to go play the fiddle at these parties and, and get the white man's money. That's how I'm going to overcome racism is by making money and whatnot. And then they kidnapped him and sold his ass into slavery. That's a lot of that. That's a lot of people today, man. That's a lot of people today. Yeah, just watching the State of the Union address, where the president really didn't mention anything about this, just not on his radar at all. It's not on Congress's radar. And then I heard from one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement who got this thing about what she wished the president would say, and it started off basically by saying, you know, I'm not going to be disruptive tonight because I was invited by a uh, congresswoman. Uh, nonetheless, here's what I wish that the president would address. And, and none of that included uh, prison for profit. None of it. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, wow, really? Slavery. Didn't have nothing about slavery in there, huh? Nothing. Nothing. It's like, what, what, either you can see it, or for some reason you got some shield up where you don't want to face it, and you just go on with life as normal until it gets you. Well, you know, a lot of the the uh, people today, they calling it police brutality, police violence, police terrorism, and those are accurate terms. But they, what those terms fail to convey is that it's a part of something larger. And what is that something right. larger? Well, that something larger is legalized slavery and human trafficking. And so, as we were just talking about um, on the Tando radio program before New Abolitionist Radio came on, is the need to deprogram people. We need to deprogram them because they have been filled with so many lies, so much miseducation, so much disinformation, 
they're being programmed through the school textbooks. They're being programmed through the movies. Uh, they're being programmed through the radio. I mean, th through entertainment, through education. They're being programmed with a whole bunch of lies. And so, you know, that's our challenge, Max. That's why we started this program uh, four to five years ago. And and because we have this need to deprogram people of this silly notion that slavery was abolished, you know, after the Civil War, that the 13th Amendment of the Constitution actually guarantees our freedom when what it really guarantees is your continued enslavement. You know, and another thing you had mentioned, or it might have been Brother Dave, Brother Dave recognized the different forms of slavery. And I know I was reading from that timeline, uh, the slavery timeline that one of our members of Move to Abolish 21st Century. That was me. That was you? Uh, but you yes. didn't do the timeline, did you? No, I just found it and thought that it was an extremely valuable tool for research. Oh, okay. Well, I was I was looking at that. You know, I was looking at that. And, and you know, all of that information that's contained therein, um, you know, it, it just goes to show you, man, that the, the stuff that you're learning in college, the stuff you're learning in high school, that it, it, it ain't nothing but a bunch of lies. If we're talking about the history of this nation or the history of slavery in this country. So, yeah, there's a lot of Solomon Northrop's running around, man. But our, our job is to educate them, to deprogram them. And give them the truth and hope that they'll become abolitionists. But some of them, man, I suspect they just not gonna give a damn, man. They not gonna, well, they not, uh, they just ain't gonna care, cause they playing the. I field. was listening in to the program earlier, Scotty, and there was one thing that was incorrect. You know, uh, we were talking about the Northwest Ordinance being the first example of the exception clause and taken from there, but it actually goes back to Vermont in 1777 in the Vermont Constitution which used the word unless, or, or, and the like. Oh, okay. So it don't use the exception, the word exception, but it says unless. Okay. Right. In our study of the uh, constitutions, we found only three words were used. It was either except, unless, or otherwise. Those were mm -mm -mm. the caveats that prevented true abolition. Mm -mm -mm. Yeah. Vermont is one of the worst. Yeah, they, it, they literally say you can be a slave for debt. It says, or bound by the law for payment of debt, damages, fines, costs, or the like. Whatever guess the what? Some of the That's stuff that we report on is still going on to this day. Mm-hmm. And, and we're very serious. We're not being extremists. I mean, we're talking about the real deal. When you think of the 1800 slavery abuses, it's very similar to what you see today like the 800 women at Tutwiler's prison who have been habitually raped and abused and uh, exploited by guards over there now for almost 18 years consistently. Like the United States leading the way in male-on-male rape, not because of homosexuality, but because of prisons, wherein they said, we can't stop that because we don't have the money or the manpower, so just go and do your thing. That type of environment we're talking about, where people are hunted on the street caught up for no reason or the most ridiculous black code-esque reason you can imagine, like sagging pants or debt that they owe for tickets and fine schemes and then thrown into prison, yeah. <laughs> you know, and used as nothing more of a slab of beef where they're fed things like maggots and forced 
to work and being abused and, and uh, exploited in and out every way you can imagine. That kind of slavery. You know, I was watching uh, Django the other day uh, with uh, starring Jamie Foxx and, and whatnot. Because I just love seeing enslavers get blown up, whether it's real life or fiction, you know. But but I was watching that, and you know, uh, Django and uh, uh, King Schultz, the bounty hunter, uh, the the rules that they were playing to get onto Candyland Plantation was they were going to pose as being Mandingo uh, uh, fighters or people who own Mandingo and Mandingo uh, uh, enslaved Africans and made them fight for sport. We reported on this on this network, on this station, on this program. Mm -hmm. Mandingo fighting is still going on in the prisons. It's still going on, and guards. people are paying to see it. Mm -hmm. Prison guards and even wardens coming in like they got tickets and VIP stats, uh, seats to watch two men beat themselves to death. It's crazy, man. It's crazy. But if you didn't see it on the six o'clock news or, you know, uh, MSNBC, pick your favorite host, didn't talk about it, then it don't exist. You know, and sometimes these things do make the mainstream news, but it'll just be a brief mention and they moving on to something else. So, man, a lot of people, man, they just don't really understand what really is going on in this country, man. And then that's when they'll be ignorant and they'll be like, the United States is the greatest country on earth. Right, right, right. Well, I'm glad that we're seeing a constant influx of information and people who are prescribing to this argument of slavery never ending and needing to be abolished now. Uh, we've seen it in articles and videos. Scholars are coming out with it. Unfortunately, our best and our brightest are being misled by our best and our brightest. So we're trying to work that whole thing out right now, particularly among a lot of the leaders of our community in politics and in education. They are the ones that really need to start examining what it is they thought they knew all along. Yeah. Um, yeah man. Just heard from Johanan. Uh, he's about 15 minutes out. So he's, you know, trying to make it home. Uh, so that he can uh, call in. So we'll he'll be joining us in roughly about 15 minutes. Cool. I'm expecting Nancy also to call in again. She finished the first part of her slavery chart that she was working on. Okay. Uh, it looks pretty amazing. So I'm hoping later on tonight she'll call in and give us a brief. See, uh, the one that you shared earlier in, in our group on Facebook, Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery, because I shared the same one you shared. I thought that was her work. Uh, it's similar, but that's in text, what she did in a chart. Okay. She She's like the abolitionist cartographer. <laughs> and uh, she can turn time into real estate and map it right on out. But, yeah, in tandem, if you used to do the two together, you can you can just, you know, look for one and another right there with those two as tools. So as a researcher, they really can show you a lot. And also, when you look at these things in total, from, you know, step back temporally, and look at it over time, it's a much clearer picture than just looking at it over the course of your life uh, time or even more secluded over just your area, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's a valuable tool, man. I appreciate these people that's working on these things. I wonder if whoever put together that recognizes the fact that slavery was never abolished. 
Um, I, I can't say yay and nay. I have yet to really review it in detail. I want to look at uh, the area that where slavery was abolished in 1856 and see what they start calling it after that, because they go all the way up to 2015. So if they make a left turn and go towards illegal slavery, like what's happening in Indonesia or in human trafficking, sex slaves even here in the United States, then we know that they, they lost track. They didn't follow actually legalized slavery as they had been doing. They right, left. right. Because those it's things are way. already illegal, as we have to point out to people. Right. You it, can't abolish something that's already illegal. You can get the king of the world to say, you know what? No more slavery, period. People are still going to break laws and do it. <laughs> yeah, but the difference is we're talking about legalized state-sponsored slavery. Right, exactly. We're talking about legalized slavery, which is codified through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and exploited by not only private prisons, but also federal and state prisons, including these days private probation companies, juvenile detention facilities, immigrant detention centers, halfway houses, and a slew of other things. Right, right. We're not talking about, you know, uh, sickos on the internet luring 14 year old girls out the house and then kidnapping them and then charging a fee to have sex with them. We, that's already illegal. Dude, that, that's already against the law. We're talking about legalized slavery and human trafficking. Right, the kind that's enacted by Congress and the Senate right. where they make these ridiculous laws or local municipal laws and then the police enforce whatever law. Because, you know, they have never stood up against any law, no matter how ridiculous, even when it goes all the way back to the fugitive slave laws. So they just enforce whatever they're, they're told to enforce, and then they throw these people in jail for profit. Well, they, they get paid. There's a financial incentive for uh, David Clark of Milwaukee. He can talk all the junk he wants to about he, if, if a law came out that was anti-Second Amendment, that we sheriffs won't enforce it. And he can act like he's apart from the people in Washington, D.C., all he wants to. But I'm sure that his sheriff's department is cashing them checks that they get from the federal government to enforce immigration laws to enforce drug laws. So they, they need to stop with the printing. You know what, Scotty? I was going to do the first story with the brother from who went to Canada I and applied for a refugee story. status, right? That's well, an important let's story. Let's put around a little bit. Why? why? I wanted to around. talk about that. That's one well, I chose. <laughs> I want to talk about it too, but I was thinking maybe we should show him why he went to Canada and applied for refugee well, status. Well, we got we to talk about that in order to say why he did it. Yeah, that's what we're talking right, about. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you want to start where I was, yeah. But then we'll show you afterwards in the stories we have lined up tonight just how bad it is. And I think he went unprepared. If he had taken some of the statistics, the DOJ reports, uh, some of the truth and proof that has been shown over the years in Canada, he might have had a better chance. No, I, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. He could have even took the Human Rights Treaty that Canada and the United States has signed, okay, uh, he could have took that and showed it to him, and they still would have sent him back because Canada racist too. You know, let's, I've heard people from Canada talking about the racism in Canada. We see what's happening with all those missing indigenous women, First Nation people up there, and we see how they, you know, the same stuff going on, non-white people all over the planet being preyed upon uh, by these vicious enslavers. So, you know, I, I, I it's a crapshoot. He could have, but look, this is the story we're talking about. 
um, Canada has rejected the application of an African-American who applied for refugee status on the grounds he was facing police racism and brutality in the United States. Kyle Liddell Canty's application was denied by Canada's Immigration and Refugee Board in December, and he is now back in the United States. Vice News reported Saturday Canty originally crossed the border into British Columbia in September as a tourist, then opted to stay and apply for refugee status. Uh, Ron Yama. Yamachi, something, I don't know how you pronounce that, an IRB board member who wrote the decision acknowledged that black people in the U.S. are stopped and questioned by police at the highest rate compared to other racial groups the CBC reported. But the decision argued that Kent, that Canty personally did not have a well-founded fear of persecution in oh. His home country. And I'll end it with this. Y'all can read the rest. I'm not going to. Well, actually, I didn't know it was a video on here. We can also hear from him. But but let me wrap up uh, the quote from the board member who who um, um, decided against giving him refugee status. Or I, I would even say political asylum. You know, I actually thought about doing this, man. But I couldn't abandon my family and go to Cuba. Because I wanted to go to Cuba and say, look, I want to be a political asylum. I want political asylum because I am a member of an endangered group called black males here in the United States. And, and you know, um, I want to know if I can get political asylum. But anyway, the guy said his removal to the United States of America would not subject, subject him personally to a risk to his life or to a risk of cruel and unusual treatment or punishment, the decision read, which I would wholeheartedly disagree with that, and the statistical data would also show uh, something to the otherwise. So I'm trying to load up this clip. All right, here we go. This is from CBC News. came to Canada to claim asylum under Refugee Act because the United States of America is corrupt. They're consistently killing black people. It's documented. Uh, the United Nations has condemned America for their racial disparities, for their uh, police, uh, police brutality. And honestly, I kept on getting harassed by cops for no reason, false charges, uh, false arrests. I'm not just the only one going through it. All black people in America are going through the same thing. It's corruption on the behalf of the United States. Okay. There you have it. That was Canty in his own words. Max? You know, historically speaking, there was a time when Canada was the north to freedom. People would make their way to Canada. Prior to becoming the north to freedom, Canada, like many other nations across the globe, really didn't pay much attention to what was happening in the United States, in Britain, and in the islands. And in Haiti, they, it didn't affect them directly, and they really didn't say much. But eventually, they became a way to freedom. Now, here we are again with the initial conditions happening again. Now, this brother believes in his heart that he, his life is in danger. His family. He don't believe, man. He knows. He knows the belief well, I, I, in I, I was going to say that. I was going <laughs> to say that. And, and he's, he's based this on things like statistics that say black, uh, Young men are 21 
times more likely to be shot and killed by police than their white counterparts. See, people believe a lot of things here in the United States. We believe in freedom and we believe in justice. We believe in the Powerball. I mean, people out there spending a fortune on Powerball, even though they've got a better chance of being gang raped by sharks and dolphins on the same day than getting the, winning the Powerball, but they believe that they have a chance of this happening and go out and live their lives as such. He's in the same boat because he can look around him and see the people dying left and right. He can see the abuses. He knows about the prisons and what they're all set up for. He has a lottery ticket called the birth certificate, and his name and number at any time can be called up for anything. Mm. That's how it is here in the United States of America with 24 million people going through our prisons, probations, jails, uh, and all of these different components of slavery here today. So for them to say that he's not in any personal risk, and so by sending him back to the United States of America is not going to put him in danger, is also wrong, because now that he stood up, he's going to become a target at the very least ridicule. This freaking life is going to be ruined. You know what I mean? They could have assisted and showed that Canada knows what's going on here. But we also know from reporting here at New Abolitionist Radio that Canada has also experimented with for-profit private prisons recently. We also know that their prison uh, percentages, the rate of incarceration, has increased 27% for 2008 for the uh, Native Africans in there in Canada. So we see Canada is going along the lines of the United States, and that's the part that does that has me yeah. not surprised. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, Canada follows the United States into all sorts of illegal actions. The invasion of Iraq, you know, the, I mean, I, I, it's man, Canada is not all that great, you know what I'm saying, for non-white people. So, but he had the statistical data. He could have probably pulled out the 13th Amendment on them and said, look, they're still practicing slavery. That's what he should have said. That's what he should have said. That would have been the simplest thing, yeah. Yeah, pull out the 13th Amendment and say these jokers are still practicing slavery. Uh, here are the, the enslavement rates for a black male of my age and, and height and weight. And, you know, here is how they're putting them to work in the federal prisons, in the state prisons, in the private prisons, producing all these goods and services for corporations that would not give me a job if I was on the street. You know, or else, you know, I wouldn't have had to sell a little weed on the side, you know, to support myself and my family or whatnot. So, I mean, he could have shown. I mean, you think about this. Think about this, because I know Canada, uh, uh, the U.S. and Cuba are normalizing relations. Right. But you think about all the propaganda we hear about why uh, Cubans get automatic political asylum as soon as they step foot on, you know, American soil, you know, usually it's in Florida and whatnot. And then they try, I'm like, man, I'm trying to get to Cuba. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, man, they got free health care. They got a free education system. I can even become a doctor and not be hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt as long as I use my doctoring skills to serve poor people. I ain't got to wear, ain't no homeless people. I wouldn't be homeless. I will always eat. I would never be hungry and whatnot. I'm trying to get to Cuba, man. You know what I'm saying? 
but then, but I mean, what's the what's I mean, the people in Cuba ain't facing what we facing today here in the United States. Cuba's prison population, man, give me a break. They might as well not even have one compared to the United States. They almost released 20% of their total prison population just because the Pope showed up and asked them to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nearly 20% of their population, prison population, said, okay, here, and let them go. Just that simple. And this was just in 2015. So, uh, Canada, y'all practicing racism. Well, y'all just didn't want another black man up there on, on getting health care or whatever, you know, and, and you didn't want to make, you didn't want to make uh, uh, America looked bad by giving asylum to someone who was being racially persecuted despite despite the fact that both of you have signed these human rights treaties that y'all do not adhere to. And we got a call. Uh, let me see. Area code 909 is joining us in Johanna. Uh, I don't know where Johanna is, but if you dial into the conference line, Johanna, hit star six and one. Because uh, I don't know your telephone number by heart, man, and that's the only way I can identify you. But we got uh, 909 joining us. Uh, who do we have on the line? Hi, this is Nancy. Hi, Nancy. Thank you hey. for joining us. Hey, Nancy. Welcome back again this week. Good to have you here. Man. We were just talking about. Yes? Yes. Let's go ahead and take our last, uh, um, excuse me, take our station ID break, and then we could jump right into our conversation and dialogue with Nancy. Okay. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio with Scotty Reed and Max Barthes. Uh, we'll be right back after these messages. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Um, you know, Scotty, I did want to make some mentions of the other story before we got into the chart uh, that we were talking about. One thing is, I've learned that a lot of our traditional allies in the abolitionist movement are no longer our allies. And it's interesting to see where they veered off and where they changed. And we're also finding that allies we never suspected would be our allies are now becoming allies. So it's, it's really a whole new game. Like, the black church is really not an ally to the abolitionist movement. Nowadays, you know, they're just, I, I don't even know what to say. We've only got a few. They support <laughs> slavery. That's yeah, what they're doing. They support slavery. With their uh, deposits Quaker, into these banks, that's investing that money into slavery. The Quakers, uh, same thing. Uh, they're working within the system, looking at it as uh, a, an error in judgment and trying to work on that. And they're not really looking at it as slavery. We have a few who have stepped forward and said, yes, this is crazy, and as Quakers, we pledge to try to do something about it. But as a whole, the Quakers aren't really allies as they were in the 1800s. Um, and, and, you know, I've tried. And the same thing applies to Canada. Canada was an ally. It was a place to go. So where is our north for freedom? I would like to know. As far as I can see, the best we can get is released back into the same cycle in the same places where we can have the same percentage chance, if not increase, of us repeating the process over and over and over again. Yeah, man, I, I'm, I'm in agreement. I mean, we have some pockets of freedom. I would consider where I live to be a free zone. 
meaning that it could go days, uh, it could be a month or so. I never see a slave catcher riding down the road. So, well, so I kind of they don't exercise their authority. Maybe they don't exercise it, but it's there for them to use. Yeah, it's there for them to use. But what I'm saying is, in relation to some of our urban centers, I live in a relatively free zone in comparison. But they still get me though. <laughs> oh, all right. Let's let's get uh, onto this chart and see who we can, uh, what magic that Nancy Shelley has put together, man. Uh, we know last week we had on and she showed us uh, the other chart she was made, which was in uh, re relevance to the occurrences that led up to uh, the police, particularly the police and courts and different laws that led up to where we're at today. And now she's got it with slavery. I'm going to try to pull this off my hard drive because I saved it and posted on New Abolitionist Radio. Shelly, you want to tell us what you got for us today? Nancy? Hello? You're kind of breaking up for me, so I, I didn't hear that last part. Oh, I was just saying, would you like to uh, give us a, a description of what it is uh, we're going to be uh, going over okay. today so, well, so, so the um, audience knows? To kind of give a background to it, uh, as Max knows a little bit about this, uh, I had a son who was incarcerated, and of course it got me interested uh, in uh, mass incarceration. Um, I was active uh, in, in that and began a nonprofit, and I began to study, and I came across Radley Balco's book, The Rise of the Warrior Cop, and that's where the timeline we, we talked about last week came from, from his book. Um, I continued to read, and my reading spread out, and I met Noir Hente, who, of course, is a, a, a compatriot of Max's, both of them being poets and both of them being abolitionists, and we began to do some, some gigs together, and before you know it, he had me reading abolitionist material. <laughs> so, so we can blame it all on him. <laughs> um, I began right. to look at... You know, multiple textbooks, and, and I, I again, I'm a person. I need to see it in in a in a list. So I made an Excel spreadsheet and I started a timeline, and then I needed to see it visually. So I ended up with another drawing, like the one that we talked about last week. And what's interesting, I think, about the drawing is that when you take it as a drawing, you know, like you said, you're going to put it up on the wall and you're going to look at it. And, and there's some things that pop out at you when you look at it. For example, all the things that are in green are laws. And it isn't just that they're laws. There's a, there's a, a sort of a, a logic to the laws. For example, the first laws were what is white and what is black. You know, first we've got to define, right? So the, the, the legislator looks, he goes, well, you know, what are we talking about here? What, you know, how are we going to get our arms around this issue so we can control it and have the power. So you say white is this, black is this, and that's pretty much the first hundred years. When you look at that timeline, that's really the, the focus of what happens in that first hundred years. If you look at the next hundred years, you see that slavery starts in 1671 when the RAC transports 95,000 slaves to the colonies. And that doesn't end for almost 100 years, and that brings us up to 1756. That's when slavery reaches its zenith. Following that, of course, things change because then there's wars with the indigenous people, and there's things starting to happen politically. And then we go through a sort of a, a, a little metamorphosis 
where we changed slavery to convict leasing. And convict leasing goes on for another hundred years. So we've got some hundred year cycles. We've got a, you know, several of them in a row. But as we come into the 1800s, at the time when uh, they're looking at debt panage being outlawed by Congress and they have black codes and the Civil War ends, you start seeing that all of a sudden the, 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 the list that you're looking at is dotted with riots. That's because as we become less agrarian and black families move north for the work, they now maybe have something, but every time they have something, it gets burned down, looted, and they get killed. We see that in Pulaski, Tennessee, starting in 1868, and it continues again for another 100 years. But then you start seeing political control, 1877, the return of white political con control, and the criminalization of black life laws. So you watch this progress, and it begins to make sense to you. You say, well, why did this happen then? Well, you can follow the flow of these of these 100-year blocks. Then suddenly you get into 1910, uh, 1868 to 1910, now all of a sudden we have a 50-year cycle. More laws, more laws. They, they tighten the labor laws in Florida. The peonage trials go on. Judicial system in the South disenfranchises blacks. And 75% of blacks live in the South, so that's where they begin this. You look another 50 years ahead. You go from 1911 to 1943, which, by the way, was the year I was born. In Detroit, of all places, you have World War One, and more, again, more black families are moving north to the work as you have the rise of the industrial era. Following that, you have recession after the war, because that's what happens, and we move into the civil rights era and mass incarceration from 1965 to 2011. And again, you see that the key issues there are right after the Civil Rights Act passed, we suddenly have the controlled substance uh, laws passed. SWAT teams proliferate, mm -hmm. the beginning of police militarization, and you can go to the other charge. Well, wow. By the way, uh, if you don't mind, when you get an opportunity, could you please post this chart on the Move to Abolish page? I have a copy of it, but I only yeah. have a thumbnail, and I want to put the large one up for people to see our new abolitionist radio. Um, I did have found that one of the things that they do with the process of slavery as it's transforming from one thing to another is they experimented with about within about a hundred years in advance, somewhere around sixty to a hundred years. Uh, we, as we saw with the uh, 1777 Constitution of Vermont, and also with Ohio in 1841 with their Constitution, how they experimented with prison labor using an exception clause, and then finally yeah. we adopted that. Right, so we, we see that they, they constantly are preparing the next stage because that stage is going to get busted and they know it. <laughs> you know what I mean? People are only going to Absolutely. Up for so long. Absolutely. So the new stage in the 2020 time is going to be from what we're seeing jails. There's jails everywhere, very much uh, leading towards what they're doing in Louisiana already, where every parish is its own little kingdom of for profit jails. Absolutely. And, and, and what worries me is the trend that I see is that they're moving toward, you know, they, they talk about uh, law enforcement becoming high tech. Uh, and if you read the book Unfair by um, Adam Ben Ferrado, he talks about this new 
pre, pre-crime, you know, where they identify those characteristics in human beings that they have a propensity for crime and they arrest them before they do anything. Well, when you get arrested for not having done something, in other words, there's no intent because that's the, the definition of committing a crime. You have a, an intent to deprive someone of their property or an intent to deprive them of their life. That's how they they get you into court and say, okay, he did it. He had this intent. They're not going to require intent. That's, yes, that's a, uh, I believe it was Mississippi that had a group of people that they were following and um, uh, targeting for arrest simply based on uh, that, what you just explained right there, that they were liable to commit crimes. I'm, I mean, this is like some science fiction movie stuff. I'm thinking Tom Cruise in the Minority mm-hmm. Report. You exactly. Pre-call. Exactly. Right, thought crimes. No, no, they didn't have thought crimes precogs. What that was is, is that these these uh um these beings, these people uh that were called the precogs, meaning that they have these premonitions of people committing crimes, and so they yeah. had this technology to where that would be you know visualized on a video screen the crime going down and so then they send the cops out there before the crime goes down based on you know uh uh this vision of of this this crime that was going to happen that did not happen but was going to happen but this also what's that isn't that the whole purpose of policing in inner cities uh, alone, yes. instead of yes. policing everywhere equally, you're expecting crimes to occur, so you send all your cops to the inner city. Well, also, we've heard people talk about, you know, they base the number of prisons that they're going to need, their future projections based on the third grade reading level. You know, of, 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 I don't know if it was black males or all males, but that's something I've heard about a lot is if you can't read by the third grade, then, you know, they're planning a future sale for you and, and, and these prisons Absolutely. And, and, and whatnot. So I'm I'm like, man, this is just, this is just, oh, my God. It's, it's scary. so scary, isn't it? I mean, yeah, they, when you look at the number of young black males in preschool, okay, not even in kindergarten, in preschool who get kicked out, Mm-hmm. Or, or who get involved with the uh, SROs or SRDs, they call them here, which is a, a sheriff's officer who is at the school, who mm-hmm. purportedly was put there in order to keep your child safe from some outside influence, but in fact is just the law to help discipline your child and have them fit in. And if they don't fit in, then they are out. We were talking before you came on, Nancy, about another chart that we got a hold of in text, which shows all the the various events that occurred uh, throughout the history of slavery from the 1400s all the way to 2015. And together with your chart, I think that's a gold mine. And uh, as soon as I start to revamp the new Word Order site, where we we have we host the North Star page, I want to put both of them up there for other research. That'd be great. That'd be great. By the way, that one that you posted, I think it was yesterday. I don't know who the man's name was, but it built it, but it was really great. He had lots of good stuff on there. Right. It's he a labor a of love. And we've got quite a few of those uh, like that, where researchers have spent years gathering information for us to be able to use. Now, I don't know if they 
intended for us to be able to prove the point that we're proving, but nonetheless, that in information is invaluable. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I thought uh, that was dynamite. I, I found that I, I'm, I'm planning on printing his out so I can compare it to mine and see what I missed. If I missed anything, and doing some some research on some of the pieces and making sure I'm comfortable with them, and then incorporating it into mine as well. From what I was reading, uh, that piece of um, uh, that work that he's working on is ongoing. That he's still working on it. From what I oh, was yeah. reading, yeah. Hmm. So if you're wondering what it is, it's on New Abolitionist Radio and also at the Move to Abolish page. It's uh, bridechancery.com, and they have the slavery timeline from 1400s, as I said, to 2000. Yeah, yeah. You were saying something, Nancy? Oh, oh no, I was just saying we sort of all inform each other. You know, it's like I learn a great deal from you, and so I'll go out and research something, or you'll ping something in my brain, and I'll think maybe that'll give me a question. And so then I'll share, I'll incorporate that in a document, and we bring it back and forth. I mean, that's to me, that's part of what I get out of the relationship is we we are getting better and more knowledgeable. We're clearer about what's really going on, and we're telling people what that is. Right, right. Right, right, exactly. You don't have to take a lot to tell it either. Once the more you know, the less you have to say. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> you can narrow it down and reduce it to almost nothing. I can change you know, I've had conversations and I know you have and other abolitionists have had conversations in the most random places that don't last for two or three minutes and change someone's life forever because it's undeniable. Yes. Well, here's what I, I wanna say, uh uh we want to bring you back in the future at one point. But we just sit in the, and the four of us converse about these presentations that you've developed and maybe give people a history lesson on it and dedicate yeah, to that. Yeah. Uh, at, the, at this point, we can't go too far into detail on it. Is there any other comments or anything that you want to add to the conversation? Well, first, we be first, be first, I just want to say, say, uh, congratulations, Nancy, and getting your son, uh, out of slavery. Oh, I, one, I'm so joyous over that. Thank you so much. When, when did he come out? When, when did he come out? Friday night. Friday night? Well, I missed you even saying that. I'm so, I'm so sorry. That is awesome. That is freaking awesome. Man, yeah, we're, you, we're yeah. still in shock. We're still in shock. And by the way, we filed suit in the state of California against the state of California for several million dollars. You'll be reading about us in the paper. <laughs> I hope you win it because I know an abolitionist with a few million dollars can make the world change. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> you know, Maya, Maya Angelou says to show you again how out of evil good can come. Right. Right, right. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, yeah, thanks again and wonderful work. Congratulations. And I sent you that stuff on the grand thing. jury today, by the way. I, you probably haven't had a chance to read it, but uh, I, I sent you that, that file, and I'd love to hear what you think of it. Is it in my uh, private messages? I think, yes, yeah, in your private messages. All right, I'll go look for it after the program tonight. Okay, sounds wonderful. All right, Nancy, All right. you have a good night. Hey, good talking with you. Everybody take care. Bye-bye. Indeed. See, this is how you make changes, man. I mean, the, the more you know, the more your circle changes and it ripples outward. So it don't take that much for you to, to go nowhere. And once you get burning with passion, like you really realize what's going on, you're like, I gotta do something. 
making yourself more knowledgeable is the easiest thing you could possibly do. And once you get to a point, you start wanting to find things and you find out stuff that, you know, you never would have realized. It starts coming in clearer and clearer. And that's happened to so many. And with Nancy, she put together a, uh, a map, a temporal map that you can look and, at. And it's not just that we should study these things just to know the history but you know a lot of times we could figure out how to attack it because other people right. were abolitionists were attacking it back then and so what what did they do what were was that successful was that not something that we could use today or you know so i mean again need like neely fuller said you don't study history to to figure out or to find out how great you once were, you study history to figure out where you messed up at. Okay, this it, is, it, that's it, right. It, this it, is why yeah. I don't prescribe to certain views because I've studied history. Like I understand, every time we try to take some land and recreate our own communities, those communities get burnt down, destroyed, uh, removed until they no longer exist. Over and over and over again. So. You can't just go buy land and say, let's be autonomous, because the same thing is going to happen again. Yeah, you got to be prepared to protect it right. legally and physically. So, um, exactly. yeah, we're waiting on Johanan. Um, he, he's trying to dial in. He says his computer is a little slow, so he should be joining us. But before we lose track of time, because I do believe Lotus Place is on air tonight, uh, we should move on to the next story. Well, let's uh, make it simple. There's a video we want you to hear. It's only about a half a minute long, okay. and it comes from the governor of Maine during a public statement that he made. And we want you to hear it yourself so we can talk about it. Yeah, I'll go um, ahead and uh, cue that up. Right. This video comes from the peak. And uh, you know what? I'm not even going to tell you what he said. You can hear it. It's only half a minute and so long. These are people that uh, take credit. These are guys of the name D-Money, Smoothie, Shifty. Uh, these type of guys that come from Connecticut, New York. They come up here, they sell their heroin, and they go back home. Incidentally, half the time they impregnate a young white girl before they leave. Which is a real sad thing because then we have another issue that we've got to deal with down the road. There it is, right there. People like D-Money and Shifty come over from Connecticut, New York, sell their heroin here, and then, in addition, they end up impregnating some white girl, which is a problem we're going to have to deal with later on down the line. So the implication is is that these are black, these are black drug dealers coming from out of town into Maine to deal all this heroin. Wow. It, right. This it, is the governor of Maine saying this. This is how he views people of color. Now, how do we know it's people of color, he said? Because he said they impregnate white girls. He didn't see if it was white guys doing that. He wouldn't be saying white girls. So he's certainly talking about anybody non-white when he says that. That was a separate separation right there because they're going to impregnate white girls it will be a problem we'll have to deal with later, which is translated into these little half-breed sons of bitches are going to come out, and we might have to start a new abortion clinic. Mm -mm -mm. And then I saw a follow-up article to that. Uh, I think it was either Think Progress or somebody else then uh, uh, published a story about some heroin dealers who had gotten arrested, and they were white. Yeah. 
Big Money is a white guy. Shifty. I don't know who the hell knows a guy named Shifty in the black community or the brown or Hispanic community or the Asian community. Who is Shifty? See, see what he was doing was and engaging. What he was doing is engaging in the, the age-old practice of black demonization, demonizing black folks. And, you know, because they sold, said the same stories back, you know, when they was uh, debating whether or not they was going to uh, criminalize cannabis. Yeah, you know, you, you remember they put out the movie Reefer Madness and these little white women are going uh, to New York City and they're in the jazz club with those jazz artists and smoking weed and you know what else they doing and all that. These are the same things that they have said throughout history, man. You know, marijuana got its name uh, which is, is a racist name but because it was associated with Mexicans, Mexican immigrants smoking that local weed, that marijuana, and they smoking that marijuana, and then it makes them want to go rape white women. These are, I'm not making this up, people. These are actually. Not at all. Arguments. And you know what else it's eerily similar of? These are basically the same words Dylan Roof said to nine innocent people before he slaughtered them in cold blood at, that, at a South Carolina Bible study. The same week that multiple AME churches burned or were shot up. Now you got this Republican governor saying the same genocidal murderous jargon. And none of this is based on reality in any way. I mean, you can tell he don't even know any black people from the way he's talking about some guy named Shifty and D-Money. Who the hell is that? In any way, and yet he believes it to be true. So somebody's feeding puppets like this that false information, and it's causing us to die. He looks killing us, I, I, literally. I, I, I don't think anybody has to feed him anything. He looked like he's already full of shit. You know, it ain't nobody <laughs> got to feed him. He already full of it. You know, he come up, he come up with that on his own. It's not hard to engage in racial stereotypes. It's not hard to blame people for doing something that they ain't doing. You know, I, I mean, like, like I, I don't know, man. But listen, why he, why doesn't the governor uh, have an issue? Somebody should send him the YouTube video of those United States Marines guarding the poppy fields in Afghanistan. Somebody tried well, to... We know that. Huh? In Maine, they're arresting blacks at 9 to 1. We already know that because we've done Maine his Ferguson. So we know what's happening in the blacks in Ferguson. And this is the language of a sociopath right before the deaths occur. You don't think that he's sitting up in these uh, meetings regarding public safety or prisons or anything like that with these same opinions of course Maybe he is. What it is he's trying to accomplish. But I noticed though, you know, I noticed that um, when it come to heroin and the drug use of white people, they always change their tune. Now these people are to be pitied, which they should be. They have a sickness. Uh, uh, addiction is a medical problem. It's a health problem. Uh, it shouldn't be a criminal problem. But when you're talking about white people, a bunch of white people. Uh, getting hooked on drugs and selling drugs to each other, you know, they, they now, oh, it's, we want to be good humanitarians. We need to help these people. We don't need to lock them up and put them in jail for 20 to 30 to life for life. We, no, no, we need, we need to, uh, uh, set aside some federal money that will then purchase this whatever is needed to keep people from ODing. We shouldn't lock people up for calling paramedics. 
you know, because their friend didn't OD so that they don't leave their friend there to die and they'll actually call and get them some help. We don't need to criminalize that type of behavior. See, when they're talking about white people, a majority of white people engaged in a certain behavior, that language is quite different than, you know, uh, talking about that night. Let's go to the crack cocaine you know, epidemic, where then they were talking about, yeah, tough on crime, and let's lock them up and throw away the key, and 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 these are animals, and and you know they ain't good for nothing, you know, just just shooting drugs and shooting each other, you know. So man, I, I mean, I'm I'm not surprised by its language, but it's good to to hear these people and to remind us in case people start thinking we live in post-racial America or some crazy notion like that. And it's this type of mentality that you actually believe this insanity that shapes our laws and shapes our policies uh, in the states that we exist in. So now you got black people in the state of Maine who have to uh, exist under the shadow of a governor who believes that all they do is come up and sell heroin and rape white women and then go back to New York and connect. Well, they was think they was doing that to and, them anyway before. You know, you mentioned the racial profiling and the disproportionate, you know, race of incarcerate. They were already profiling them to begin with, man. So, you know, they they just repeating the same old story, man. Except for this time, insert heroin as the drug of choice instead of crack. You know, there was another story that applied to the same governor that showed a direct connection to private prisons. I've been looking through my page to try to find it. I put it out about a week ago. I should have this for you shortly. Uh, in the meantime, anything else you want to say about this? No, nah, I ain't got nothing to say nothing about that loser. But uh, we got Johanan uh, joining us, uh, Brother Johanan. Do we have you, sir? Please. Try again, Johanan. All right, how about I unmute myself? Can you hear me now? <laughs> yes, sir, we can hear you now. What's up, brother? Welcome oh, home. man, peace to the abolitionists. Peace. Good to be here, fellas. Sorry I'm running so late this evening. Yeah, Yo, I hear what you're talking about. Bill got to get paid though. somehow. Man, yeah, but I hear what y'all talking about. Yes, yes, you are. Everything you said is on point. This dude is completely off the chain, but, you know, this is uh, this is the mentality. As I say, I say that he needs to be fired immediately. He should well, not be in office yeah. right now. Yeah. I've heard people commenting, well, he's known for, you know, he's always opening his mouth and putting his foot in it. He's just, he's like, he's like Joe Biden like that. He just says stuff he doesn't mean, he doesn't think, but he's not racist. I'm like, okay. But yeah, uh, as I always say, man, it, uh, it comes down to, uh, black criminality. And really, any other ethnicity or culture or history of people, when challenged uh, by white supremacy, white supremacy can only win by making everybody else, you know, the bad guy. So black criminality is is just, you know, that's the that's the uh, that's the currency of white supremacy. That's how they keep it going as well. You know, these blacks can't run anything because look, they're criminals. And whether it's Native Americans or if it's the the native people that were from the land is called New Zealand or if it's the Natives that's from Hawaii or the natives from any place else or any other religion that's not, you know, Christianity or, or westernized uh, Islam or anything else. Everybody else is bad. And that's why we need to do what we need to do to make them good. So. Man. I, <clears throat> let me see. 
Okay, I think I found the link where he's working directly with the prison industry and has literally had his campaign funded by a for-profit private prison company. Oh, yeah, ain't he linked in? CCA. Ain't he also a, a good buddy of, of Governor Christie? Hmm. Well, Chris I don't know Christie? about that, but yes, I do he have is. some he evidence is. here that shows that his entire campaign was funded by CCA. It wasn't like a poll. He was the only candidate. Yeah, Chris Christie was asked about him. And Chris Christie said exactly what you just said. Oh, you just can't pay him no attention. He say stuff like that. He doesn't mean any harm. He's not a racist or, or mm -hmm. it, no, Christie was talking about, you know, the liberal media, the media say these things and these gotcha moments and, 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 you know, <laughs> <Gotcha>. what, <laughs> whatever. And, and so anyway, but he's a good buddy of Chris Christie who also has, you know, long-standing ties to the private prison and slavers. So, you know, them two was buddies, you know, then hell, that just tells me even more. Let, <laughs> let me read a little bit of the story about him and his connection with CCA. It says, uh, in Maine's last gubernatorial campaign, the controversial Correction Corporation of America, the nation's largest for-profit prison operator, spent 25000 on behalf of Republican candidate Paula Page. Now, Maine's newly elected governor... The money was given to the Republican Governors Association's main political action committee, which spent heavily on the page. No other main gubernatorial candidate benefited from CCA money. Campaign finance report also revealed, and now he even had a meeting with him. Check this out. It says, although his transition office, uh, transition office denied a link with the contribution, LePage met in August with CCA representatives weeks before he became governor. The meeting breathed new life into the town of Milo's effort to lure CCA into building a giant prison in that remote, impoverished Piscataway County community. Milo officials also met with the page, the town manager, Jeff Jackson, and CCA officials have talked about a prison housing two to 2,400 prisoners with two to 300 employees. If true, that would be an extraordinarily small number of staff, but such a large number of prisoners. The Maine State Prison has just over 400 workers, most of them guards, to deal with just 900 prisoners. Damn! LePage also is looking into boarding Maine prisoners and CCA prisons out of state. So he's also talking about human trafficking. Damn! Now you know why they call D-Money and Shifty. Because he sure. wants you to think they're criminals, because like, Johanan just said, the currency is black criminality. That's how they run the show, man. How they justify the brutality. How they justify <clears throat> the uh, the hyper-policing. Um, the, uh, uh, is it what they call it, uh, draconian uh, sentencing laws. And, you know, how they justify the brutality. See, that's the thing. is It's, it's brutality. It's not uh, slighting people. It's not offending people. It's not even suppressing people. It's not uh, anything less than savagery and brutality. And these ways that we've been kind of conditioned to just allow this to happen, they come from this kind of propaganda. I mean, it's that simple. This kind of propaganda stands on. There is no national uh, news coverage of these events. There is no debate going on on all five major cable news network evening shows 
morning shows, noonday lunch shows, late night, you know, whatever shows. There's there's no Alex Jones report on this. There's no so there's no independent. There's there's no RT. There's nobody commenting on this. This is the kind of thing that flies, and it gets some social media traction where people are like, man, this is some bull. This dude is crazy. And then it kind of goes away. So it never gets disproven. It never gets shot down. It never gets disrespected. Hell, they shit on Trayvon Martin's dead body. They they, they sat up here and, and treated Trayvon, Jordan Davis, Michael Brown, Kajami Powell, and on and on and on. All of these dead people. Walter Scott, they went and found an old arrest warrant for Walter Scott from 1981. So there is an active effort to go about demonizing, criminalizing, dehumanizing people that have been murdered by this system in an active effort to ignore blatant racism of elected officials, of decision makers, of top persons in top positions that make these decisions that control populations, communities, legislations, and on and on and on. The judges in Ferguson allowed to leave his, leave his job after he's the one that had all those thousands and thousands of warrants destroying that community, destroying those people's lives. He's allowed to step down once they found out, oh, he's fixing tickets for his friends. He's fixing DUIs for his friends. He'll just leave the position. Nothing else is said about it. I mean, that's a crime. That that might have been some of the federal laws or statutes that were broken that was in the Ferguson report. Yeah. Yes. But But is there anybody being charged with criminal charges? It's a couple of dozen of reports like the Ferguson report from the Department of Justice and major metro police agencies all over the country, like we talked about last week. Cleveland's about to have a second one. And it's always finding constitutional rights violations and all sorts of human rights violations and all sorts of actual legislation, laws on the books being violated. And nobody ever gets prosecuted. Nobody pays and nobody hears about it. Like I said, at least you can hear on it. I mean, that's why I can't, I don't get, I don't really give a damn about these uh, reporters. These, you know, the what's the the joy, the black chick that's on midday MSNBC, joy like Reed. MSNBC. Yeah, all these MSNBC uh, black women and mixed folks and white uh, sympathizers is really liberal and all these different caricatures they try to put up to make us feel like okay, this is somebody who identifies with the black folks. I don't hear any of them speaking on anything that means something. If there's already a national uproar about something, they come in to kind of soothe it a little bit. But they come in to kind of. They don't come in and tell you about this. I, why aren't you blowing this up? Why aren't you blowing that out? Why aren't you putting that dude on TV? Why aren't you getting him fired from his job? Because somebody That's gave me I'm, some insight into it, it, and everything that you that they say on TV, there's no freestyling going on, man. They're reading from oh, no. teleprompters. All of that oh, is yeah. written out yeah. beforehand. And so the question is, why the producers aren't putting the words in these puppets' mouths? about this or, or, or about that but you know most of them most of them news anchors ain't nothing but sock puppets man right right hey hey right. we we so. overdue we do need to take our break uh before we move on oh, to bad. the next story so we don't run out of time all right well uh we're going to take our break message from our sponsors and we'll be right back after these messages you're listening to new abolitionist radio Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. 
Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. You know, our conversation that we were having earlier about the governor of Maine and what he his ideals are about people of color and how he represents them when he's making his decision-making processes regarding prisons and private prisons and his connections with them. Well, as the crap slides downhill, it goes into somebody else's hands, and that will be the police. So using uh, this as an example, what is happening all across America, we have a story that we reported on last year at the time about an ex New York Police Department cop who admitted what they do out there in New York. He said they plant evidence, they frame innocent people, and they do it for an arrest quota. Because, you know, you got to have the arrest quota. There's these contracts with these prisons that say, you guarantee us for the next 25 years, we'll be 80 to 100% full at all times. And usually mm. they exceed that. Well, the story comes out of Counter Current News. Johanna, do you have that page pulled up? Yeah, I have the link up here. If you don't mind, brother. Sure, sure. You said it's Counter Current News. Uh, Ex-NYPD cop admits, quote, unquote, we planted evidence and framed innocent people, all for arrest quarters. So as we reported a couple of weeks ago out of Alabama, uh, how the cops came out, busted, same thing, been saying they've been planting evidence, planting drugs on black folks for decades. So. Here we go again. Uh, it's not your imagination. New York Police Department has been planning evidence and framing innocent people all in order to meet arrest quotas. This comes as former New York City narcotics detective Stephen Anderson testified in court that the NYPD routinely plants drugs on innocent people. He described this as a quote-unquote common practice, quick and easy. It's a quick and easy way for officers to reach their quotas. The practice is known among NYPD as flacking. Anderson was busted along with four other officers flacking four men, or is it flaking? Uh, flaking four minute, <clears throat> flaking four uh, four minute queens back in 2008. He's cooperated with prosecutors and has admitted uh, that far from a few bad apples, this is the modus operandi of the NYPD. I was something of, it was something I was seeing a lot of, whether it was from supervisors or undercovers and even investigators. He testified, it's almost like you have no emotion with it. <laughs> that. <laughs> that they attach bodies to it, that they're going uh, to be out of jail tomorrow anyway, so nothing's going to happen to them anyway. NYPD arrested over 50,000 people last year for low-level marijuana offenses. As it turns out, 86% of them are African-American and Latino. 86% of 50,000 people arrested for what is being sold legally on the shelves in a half a dozen states. Yeah. Now, there's only 17% black people in New York. 86% of the people arrested are African-American and Latino. And we know that 90% sitting in their jails waiting for trials are black and Latino, but slavery never ended, right? Yeah. See, as I said, this is how crap rolls downhill. So it goes yeah. to the governor's hands, to the police commissioner's hands, uh, the chief of police, and then they go out and they fill these quotas. And what are these quotas for? What are they for? Not generate revenue with crime, exactly. Generate <laughs> revenue, just like the Department of Justice said in the DOJ report about Ferguson. This is not happening in New York alone, people. Hell no. This is happening all over the country, and what's stymieing the what's what's keeping a lid on it is a lot of these states. As you've been doing the Ferguson is America. Series. One thing I learned about my own state here in Kansas, when I was looking at the Attorney General uh, report 
on racial profiling here, as many states are, are participating in as well. There's a lot of information in those. One thing I found out about Kansas is they won't even, they will acknowledge how many cases have been brought against the police in a lot of these cities here, but they won't tell you any details of it unless the outcome was the officer being found guilty. So that right there is kind of an issue. I mean, because like when I looked in the nearby cities around where I live, there was most of the cities had, you know, a couple dozen cases a year. Some would have a hundred or more cases a year of abuse uh, uh, reports being filed against officers or what have you. And that's all you would see is just a number. So if you see 2012, 136 cases brought against officers, reports, you know, filed against officers, 2013, you know, 87, 2014, 102. And then there may be one in 2015 that was actually somebody was found guilty of, of you know, the, the cussing at, at a person. You know, it's like, what happened to them 500 other <laughs> cases that people said the cops abused them and planted evidence on them and falsely arrested them and everything? Well, if they're not found guilty of it, they're not going to put the details in, in any kind of a official report. And this keeps a lid on the corruption that's going on around the nation. Like we talked about Alabama. Those cops was found of doing guilty of doing the same thing. Got a problem, man. It's a serious problem. Um, <laughs> Scotty, any thoughts on this before we uh, transition into the next segment? Um, not really, except to say that this is widespread. This is part of the patterns and practices that. You know, you get informed about every week in the Ferguson is America series. This is pattern and practice. And so, you know, people need to wake up and stop um, talking. Because I heard some black people today arguing about why Paul Ryan didn't, you know, clap when President Obama said this is the greatest nation on the earth. Come on now, people. Come on. Come on. I'm so tired of it. I'm so tired of it. I unfollowed and unfriended so many damn fools during that State of the Union. I just didn't have the tolerance for it. When I happened to log on to social media, I didn't even remember it was coming on, and I was doing something else. And I just started seeing all of these people, like, like doing, like, a minute-by-minute -minute report on everything. Oh, he said that. And, I'm like, bye. You know. Next person. Oh but, man, but I'm saying though, awesome. You see what? He, bye. Next. Bye. Nobody get out of here. Nobody can know what's really going on in this country, and and then the stuff that's widespread news. You know, like the killings. That's getting a lot of you know attention right now. The police killings of unarmed people, men, women, and children. And 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 you still say that this is a great nation? You let those words slip between your lips. What's great about People being extrajudicially killed in the streets almost every Scotty, other that day. Stuff, that stuff doesn't matter because you got black on black crime. I mean, what's great? Yeah, right. What what's great? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the argument. That's all it is. That's all they got. That's all there is coming from the from the naysayers. You can't worry about those things. What about black on black? But crime? but but we got quiet. the Solomon Northrop's as we was talking about earlier in the broadcast. Black people who will say those things to you, you know. Yeah. So nah, I'm, I don't have anything to add except to say this happens more than what you know is being reported to you. This probably happens in every every police department. Probably got some of these in them. 
where they frack, yeah. you know, flaking people and whatnot. So anyway, that's why we need to end the drug war. That's why we need to repeal right. all the drug laws. Then you can't, it, it, you know, you, you have to find something else to set them up on. Right. I want to ask y'all this. Um, when this kind of situation is what is, is, is dominating everything, and we reported on this, you know, for several years now. So we have never run out of material. We have never been able to report even even a small percentage of what we actually have access to every week. We've never had to cover a same story twice. I mean, what we're dealing with is something that is unique in reporting of news in all other venues pretty much going going, you know, right now. I mean, everything else if you're talking about sports, there's going to be some stories you're going to cover a few times. If you're talking about politics, going to be a lot of stories you cover several times. You're talking about religion. You're talking about race, talking about money. I mean, all these other areas, you're going to be kind of staying with the same thing and reporting on the same stuff, overlapping. We can talk about individual accounts and stories every single day of the week and not run out of news. How is it possible that all of these news agencies do not cover any of this stuff that we talk about on a major mass media, nationwide, cable news, whatever level, how is that even possible if people don't accept that this is a police state? You already know if MSNBC, if Anderson Cooper sat down and covered his, his news like we covered the news on New Abolitionist Radio. Anderson Cooper, you already know, would lose his job. CNN or whoever he's on would retract most of the stories that he said. The police would come on and have some kind of bombastic asshole come on there and start going off talking about you endangering cops' lives. You get a bunch of cop sympathizers cheering for them. They get a bunch of donations and everything else about save our warriors and all this crap. And whoever said it would get fired. You already know that. I'm not exaggerating. You already know anybody that reports this on a major news level is going to lose their job, and the and the network is going to apologize for that reporting. How do we not live in a police state? Yeah. I have no faith in uh, corporate media, brother. They only get to say what their uh, handlers tell them they can say. Otherwise, yeah. they lose their job, as you said. So their allegiances and their priorities are not my priorities, not my allegiances. I'm looking for freedom for my people who are locked in freaking cages and being abused and exploited. I'm looking for freedom. My people can't walk the streets without wondering whether or not their lottery ticket's going to get pulled that day for something as simple as not using a turn signal with a cop two feet behind you tailgating you. Mm. you know, that, that's, that's where my priority lies. But, you know, the facts are indisputable. And in our next right. uh, segment, it just shows you, like, there's this brother who wrote, the writings of J.B.W. Tucker. Apparently, he's a conservative, and he's, uh, his title says Reclaiming Theology. But he went and decided, you know, I've been hearing all these stories, and people are talking about white privilege, so let me pull out the statistics so I can see them with my own eyes and come to an understanding of what it is that's going on. And he covered the statistics on everything, from prisons to jails to uh probation to the war on drugs and tied it all together to show you that this is racially based. That when we tell you Vermont <laughs> is arresting black people who yeah. represent 1.2% or 1.3% of the state at 14 to 1, that that's not, that, that's a problem. That's a serious problem. 
right there. That's your white privilege in allowing you, that not to happen to you. Although you do have white people going to prisons and jails, but nowhere near at the rate of what's happening to a minority in every sense of the word. Just going with the prisons from the stats about white privilege. He says, the U.S. has seen a surge of arrests over the last four decades and an absolute explosion in the prison population. The primary reason for this increase is the war on drugs, the above, which is wholly ineffective, disproportionately targets people of color to extreme degrees and has created a culture of crime that has trapped black men in poverty. Here's some of the uh, quotes. The U.S. prison population rose by 700% from 1970 to 2005, mostly as a result of the war on drugs. The United States is 5% of the world's population, housing 25% of its prisoners. There are currently more black people locked up in prison than there were enslaved in 1850. One in every 15 black men and one in every 36 Latino men are currently incarcerated. While for white men, the statistics is one in 106. Huh. One in three black <laughs> men can expect to go to jail at some point in their lifetime. <laughs> one of us three. Minorities are less than 28% of the U.S. population, but they are nearly 60% of the prison population. Blacks and Pacifics are less than 13% of the U.S. population, but they are 38% of the American prison population. This is not simply because black men are committing more crimes. See poverty below. African-American juvenile youth is only 16% of the U.S. population, but 28% of juvenile arrests, 37% of youth in juvenile jails, and 58% of youth sent to adult prisons. Oh, man. Black boys are five times as likely to go to jail as white boys. Latinos boys are three times as likely. Now, you know, America's three quarters white, right? You, you guys realize that. And we're talking about black children who are only 13% of the population. They're five times as likely to go to jail as their white counterparts who make up three quarters of the damn population. The average cost of prison in the United States is 31307 per year for each inmate. That's the equivalent of three years in-state tuition at UCLA. And the last one I want to put here is, in many states, the cost of incarcerating a single inmate per year is much higher than the national average. In California, it's 47000 and a half per year. In states like Connecticut, Washington, and New York, it's anywhere from fifty dollars to $60,000 per year. And this is just a piece of the stats that he presents to show you that this is as real as the sun in the sky. Hey, man, as long as it's attached to non-white people, I'm sorry to say it <clears throat> to any of my white friends or white allies or anybody I work with or know from any kind of walk of life that is not black, that, you know, considers that we are friends or close or that you like me or trust me or whatever. I'm sorry if it pisses you off to hear me say this. But do something about it then. Prove me wrong. I'm not speaking from my opinion. My feelings are not involved in, in how I've summed this thing up when I speak on it. We routinely give you facts and figures, percentages, arrest rates, numbers, statistics, charts, graphs, anything you want to use to quantify and qualify scientific evidence. Anything you want to use. 
there's no way to gather information and analyze it to come to a conclusion that is based on that evidence, based on scientific information or logic even. There's no way to collect the information relating to what's going on and not see what we're already telling you. Because if it was, somebody would be doing it. Nobody right. can do it. That's just the problem. Nobody can give you evidence that disproves everything that's proven every single week on this program and through all these other media outlets that we resource to tell you all the time. It's racism, white supremacy, with the brutality of old school slavery in a modern day prison system that you don't see because it's, it's not even on plantations. Like back in the day when you might drive down a country road and see five miles of cotton fields and a couple hundred black folks bent over picking the cotton, might see a few people hanging from trees here and there. It's not even like that now. They put it all behind walls in several hundred yards of barbed wire, coiled razor wire and fences, and they tell you about criminals and all, and they have every once in a while one escapes, and they tell you how they're such a danger to the community. So you don't want to go there. You don't want to see it. You don't want to look at it. If you hear anything about it, you're scared. You don't want to see it. They deserve to be there and everything else they can use in propaganda to desensitize you to what's going on. And then they brutalize everybody that's in it, and they hold it over the head of everybody that ain't in it yet, telling them you're coming. And every once in a while, they check every single last one of us to see if they can get us in it. When you look at that stop and frisk program in New York, what was it, 2.3 million people stopped over so many years? In all of those cases that had to, had to go through court systems, all those cases that generated revenue for that city and for the municipalities, and they came out with something less than 3% of all of those millions of people that were stopped, questioned, frisked, arrested, ticketed, jailed, less than 3% of all of that was ever anybody found guilty of anything? And let me stop, because it's not going to get better, and I'm not getting ready to, to keep going into it and, and not start flipping out. So, <laughs> I want to read another quote from this uh, report that he put out. It says, in 2004, the U.S. Bar Association, not exactly a liberal bunch, reviewed the public defender system and came to the following conclusion. <laughs> All too often, defendants plead guilty, even if they are innocent, without really understanding their legal rights or what is occurring. The fundamental mm -hmm. right to a lawyer that America assumes applies to everyone accused of criminal conduct effectively does not exist in practice for countless people across the U.S. Read that again, he says, please. This is the American Bar Association admitting that the fundamental constitutional right to a fair trial does not exist for many people in the U.S. It just doesn't mm. exist for them. It's not there. They don't have that right. These plea bargains, which represent a full 96% of all felony cases, federal felony cases, just send them straight to prison. No trial. Yeah, and the thing is, we've known this for years, like we talked about um, when the uh, Supreme Court justices went before the uh, House Judiciary Committee to apply for uh, funds increases for the 2016 budget. Uh, Justice Kennedy uh, sat there mm -hmm. in front of the committee and said that there is no such thing as the right to a fair trial in this country. It is a myth. 
that constitutional right is now is a myth because judges don't see evidence. Juries don't hear witness testimony, don't see evidence. What happens is a prosecutor throws as many charges as humanly possible against the defendant and with the power of the law enforcement officers, with the power, and that includes not only the police that arrested him and the sheriff's department and the, and the, the uh, bailiffs that are working the court, the court clerks, all of the staff of the court, the prosecutor's office, all the way up to the state attorney's office, all the way up to the attorney general of the United States of America. All of these people are against each one individual that is accused of a crime all across America. And most of those people, like Max just said, what, 97% federal cases, 94% state cases adjudicated through plea bargains. So people aren't even getting a fair trial. They're just looking at all these. Wait a minute. You said you stopped me over a dime bag and you go, you go throw a, you gonna throw a murder charge at me too? Like, well, I could. And the people that they're gonna find you guilty of something, I could, I could throw anything I want against you. You can't beat everything I can throw against you. So why don't you just take this little deal? I know it was a dime bag, but you'll just do two years and you do five years probation. You'll pay the court about ten, fifteen thousand in fines and fees and whatnot. You'll be on us for years. But the eight, hey, you want, you want to go ahead and do five years? I'll at least get you five years. Probably get you ten. Well, you already lost your job. You already lost your family. You ain't been to work in weeks. The, the bail system, you've been locked up. You didn't have bail money. You lost your job the day you got arrested and couldn't go to work the next morning. Rents behind, cars gone, phones off. I mean, you want to keep going? Child support, family just destroyed. Your folks living with the, with they, with the in-laws. I mean, you, your whole life. And this is, system, this is systematically going on across America. This is the system. This Sorry, is why we're trying to get uh, asylum in places like Canada, hmm. who deny us and tell us that, you know, y'all ain't really in no trouble. <laughs> you ain't really in no trouble. If we send you back, right. ain't nothing going to happen to you. You fronting. No. Come on now. The cops ain't that bad. But this is the same Canada who warned their police to be wary of our co I mean, to warn their citizens when traveling in the United States Beware of United States police because they are robbing people. I mean, they literally put it in their newspapers, said it clearly to warn their own citizens. But, you know, this guy don't know what he's talking about. Right. Well, before we go into the Ferguson is America on Oregon today, I did want to add a, uh, a personal thing to do here. Is when I moved into this house after the, we were flooded out and lost everything, I was having some problems getting people to help us move. You know, my wife had just had a stroke. I was dealing with some illnesses, and then I had a daughter who just literally had a baby. And this one brother came along to help me. And it, he unfortunately has one leg, which he lost in an accident. So we're prosthetic. And he helped us move our furniture and spent a couple weeks hanging around with us. You know what I mean? And then one day he disappeared. And I'm like, what the hell happened to him? Apparently, he failed to pay a bill on his probation officer who uh, immediately had him arrested and put in the jail. They've been holding this brother now for about a month, almost maybe three weeks or something like that, way beyond any time that they had any right to hold him for no charges. So instead, they're trying to put charges on him now, saying that his car might have been involved in a drive-by shooting. Might have been, because they have four wheels, and four wheels fits the description. So they're holding him on this guesswork now, They've been abusing him in the jail, uh, forcing him to go into showers without his prosthetic, 
Uh, at one point, his shoulder got dislocated because he fell in the shower. They've been brutalizing him, starving him, and all of these things because uh, it's prison in South Carolina, and it's not they do you for young black males. They don't care nothing about you. Hopefully, he's going to be out soon. And what he does, I'm going to bring him in on a guest. And per my instructions, he's been recording everything that's going on. So you can hear from his own mouth what we all seem to experience one way or another around here. I mean, this is my life that happened. This just happened recently to people I know personally. And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now who can say similar things. But we're going to bring him on here as soon as he gets out. And then we're going to see what we can do about South Carolina's jail. Well, I just wanted to add that. Okay, well, we've been hearing all kinds of crap coming out of Oregon, right? I mean, it's like a big joke over there of white privilege when you got the Bundys talking about how they're like Rosa Parks. Let me tell you something about Oregon. If Rosa Parks was in Oregon, she wouldn't have to be refusing to get off, uh, give up her front seat of the bus. She would be refusing to get on the front seat of the prison bus. Because in Oregon, y'all shipping away black people like it's a freaking profession. So we're going to go in and tell you today exactly how Oregon is for this. Let's pull it up over here. Here we go. People, quick facts. Population 2014, estimate 3.970 million. That's a lot of people. White alone represents 87.9%. Black, we'll just say 88% is white. Black or African American alone represent 2%. Remember those numbers now, 88%, 2%. American Indians represent 1.8%. Just stop saying numbers black. Hispanics represent 12.5%. There's five times as many or six times as many Hispanics as there are Native Americans and African Americans. And uh, whites make up 88%. Business quick facts. Total number of firms in 2007 was 348,000 plus. Of those, black-owned firms represented 1.2%. That's pretty damn good considering you're only 2% of the population. <laughs> American Indians represented 1.2% as well. Hispanic-owned firms represented 3.3%. And women-owned firms represented 29.8%. Another pattern in practice. The jail systems. Oregon has 36 counties. According to the latest jail census taken in 2006, there are 36 jail facilities with 6,708 inmates. The Oregon State Sheriff's Association is responsible for inspecting jails, the prison system. As of December 31, 2013, the Oregon prison population was 15,362. As of December 13, the Oregon Department of Corrections had 4,566 employees and a budget from the fiscal year 2013 uh, biennium of $1.4 billion. They had that lot of money. The community correction system. As of September 1st, 2014, there are, or there were, 17,659 felony probationers and 13,925 parolees under community supervision. The crime rate in Oregon 2013 is 13% higher than the national average. Property crime accounts for 93% of the crime rate in Oregon, which is about 18% higher than the national rate. 
The remaining 7% are violent crimes and are about 27% lower than other states. Oregon has a rate about 3% lower than the national average of incarceration in prisons, adults per 100,000. They also have a rate about 17% lower than the national average number of probationers per 100,000. Oregon, as of 2013, has a rate of about 182% higher than the national average number of parolees per 100,000 people. Taxpayers in Oregon paid about 18% higher than the other states per inmate in 2012, with a price tag of 38000 per inmate versus the national average of 32. According to the Justice Policy Report, Oregon charges $96,000 per year to incarcerate one teen for one year. Now, for the prison and jail incarceration rates, incarceration rates per 100,000 population, whites, 502. Blacks, 2,930. Hispanics, who represent six times the number of blacks, are at 573. So blacks are incarcerated in Oregon at a rate of 6 to 1, while making up only 2% of the statewide population. Oregon's history with private prisons is confusing for a researcher. I'll share the info that I found below, and then I'll close it. Scotty, should we take a break before I share this info, since we're five minutes of our break time? No, go ahead and forego that last break. Okay. Here's the things that I thought you should know. One, 2016, about Oregon AFSCME corrections. Oregon AFSCME. CME proudly represents over 3,175 employees of the Oregon Department of Corrections in 12 institutions and various other DOC work sites. Roughly 1,850, 1850 of these are in the security bargaining unit, corrections officers, corporals, and sergeants. Another 1,325 are in the securities plus bargaining unit in some 125 different classifications in both the prison and the DOC administrative offices. AFSCME is the leading public safety union in the state of Oregon. In addition to state corrections employees, this union represents assorted city police and county sheriffs, state local parole and probation officers, non-sworn employees of the Oregon State Police, juvenile parole and probation officers in the Oregon Youth Authority, 911 operators in several jurisdictions, the Port of Portland Police, investigators, and other employees of the Oregon Liquor Control Commission, as well as workers at the State Office of Emergency Management, Fire Marshal, Department of Public Safety Standards and Training, and the Oregon Military Department. AF. Now, mind you, this is all the same union. You're talking about the deck stacked against you. AFC CME represents the corrected, uh, corrections members are also automatically part of AFC CME Correction United, the, Nas the National Union's Auxiliary Organization devoted to corrections employees nationwide. Uh, units, United, corrections United includes 62,000 corrections officers and 23,000 other corrections employees, such as our Security Plus unit, who join forces to fight for better pay and benefits to safe workplaces and to uphold the standards of professionalism in our field. ACU members and men 
are men and women working all across the country <clears throat> in maximum, medium, and minimum security facilities, both state prisons and county jails. ATU has a proven record of accomplishments on the federal, state, and local levels and at the bargaining table, fighting to improve pay and working conditions of all COs and corrections employees. As it showed you that the union pretty much manages everybody involved in your incarceration from your arrest, even the 911 callers are all on the same payroll. No private prison. One of the biggest yeah. threats to corrections employees nationally are privately run for-profit prisons. Private prisons take public jobs away and lower the standards for corrections pay. How? This is simple formula. They pay less in salaries and benefits, and they scrimp on security. Now, these are the guards, the union, telling you what the private prisons do. You don't have to worry about private prisons in Oregon because they're illegal here. Thanks to an AFSCME bill passed years ago, and an AFSCME followed up the legislation that prohibits the Oregon DOC from even sending any of its prisoners to a private prison out of state. Private prisons are simply not an issue in Oregon due to our diligence. Now, this is a statement from them, and as we just recently read, the governor is already discussing doing exactly the opposite. Uh, a couple of other things I'm going to point out, and then I'll be done. <clears throat> Number two, 2013 Portlanders tax dollars are currently supporting private prisons. <laughs> See? Contradictory, isn't it? These companies can only generate greater profits through an increase in prisoners and time served by prisoners. According to the City of Portland's Treasury Division Investment Portfolio Summary, as of September 30th, Portland held bonds in Wells Fargo with a market value of over $40 million. Wells Fargo is a large shareholder in the GEO Group and Corrections Corporation of America, the two largest private prison companies in the U.S., and through its investments in Wells Fargo, Portland is providing capital for GEO and CCA to lobby for policies that result in more people being incarcerated. Third, in the late 1800s, the Oregon State Penitentiary was leased to a private company. The private company was responsible for the maintenance of the institution, care of the inmates, and maintaining the security of the institution. The company's objective was to use the inmates for low-cost labor in order to increase profits. Since this concept was becoming very popular nationwide, Oregon's legislature approved the experiment. The experiment was soon terminated. Why? In one day, every inmate at the penitentiary escaped. Most walked out the front door. The slavery part was of no concern, y'all. They ended it because they lost the slaves. Inventory. What do you mean inventory? The inventory in the private prison business is human body. Private prisons can only make a profit if there are people who can be locked up expensively. For the private prison industry, there's a market group, and people's failing and winding up back in prison on new charges later. The geo group's selling point for a Portland private prison is not that people confined in the prison will be less likely to return to prison. It's just that they can turn a profit and give us a cut. We'll be counting on their profits to fund other services, becoming part of a ghoulish equation that depends on locking people up solely to generate an income. There you have it. Oregon is Ferguson.
Oh, man. Man, I keep thinking you might surprise me, Max. I keep thinking you might get off into one of these uh, liberal liberal enclaves, one of these states that's known for being post-racial and a, you know, touchy-feely kumbaya hug, rainbow state where everybody has a chance and all this other stuff. I just keep hoping every week it's going to be one that's going to surprise me. Like, man, I knew Oregon was going to be the one to just really make a difference, you know. But it seems uh, we're running out of letters in the alphabet, brothers. There's a lot of supporting stories. I'm not going to go over them. Please visit the page and join us at Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery, uh, where we gather together to share information and work on projects. You'll see a long list of supporting stories. I do want to make a shout-out to End Mass Incarceration Oregon, our allies and abolitionists over in Oregon, who keep the people updated on what's going on. So shout-out to uh, Kim Elliott and End Mass Incarceration Oregon. Indeed, indeed. Peace to them. Yeah, just the deathless in Oregon alone will blow your freaking mind. Since yeah. 2012 or 2010, there's somewhere like 60 people or more who have died at the hands of police. Hmm. Sad state of affairs, brother. Sad state of affairs. Well, are it's we real in the field. Yeah, it's man. real in the field, bro. Well, yeah. I think it's time to uh, to keep it moving and go into our next segment, uh, I guess, which will be our uh, rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, unless you guys have any more comments on Oregon or anything no. in general. No, this I don't is all over. Hey, hey, that's just another great state in the great nation of USA. Yeah. Dude, all of those thousands that you heard me say, tens of thousands of people, probation, parole, prison, jails, well, six to one attacking a population that only represents 2% of the entire state's population. But, Max, this is the land of the free. What are you talking about? <laughs> this the land of the free, man. Sad state of affairs, man. And it's just clear and present danger, but it's just so difficult to get it in people's heads while they're playing their fiddles, pretending to be Solomon Northrop. Okay, well, well, they still have the they still have the the, the uh, delusion, <clears throat> like uh, Solomon Northrop had, that they can create individual wealth for themselves, and thereby thereby they can go around all of these things. They, they're not <clears throat> they're not entirely in their heart denying that any of this is true. Or that there is a large segment of people that are victimized by it and lives are destroyed by it and we all kind of lose out, you know, one way or another through all of this going on. They'll, they'll go with you as far as agreeing with it. But the thing that's keeping us caught up is there's so many people that are clinging to the dream. Just like this lotto Powerball is one and a half billion dollars. It's a lot of people that believe there's a way out by getting just enough for them and they house and then they won't have to worry about it. Hey man, I can work some more overtime. I can I can put in a little more of this. I can do start up my little business on the side. I can make enough money to take care of me and mine. And this I won't have to worry about any of this because this is happening to the poor people. This is happening to the black people. This is happening to the criminals. So you know what they say: divided, uh, united we stand; divided we fall. And as every week we telling you we falling all every everywhere all the time. Falling. It's happening to D money and shifty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And and you know what? It's not so bad it's happening to them because while it's happening to them, guess what though? They getting all that fine young white white woman sex. They they getting all mm-hmm. the sex they can get from these young white girls. So really, I mean, they should have to pay. <laughs> messing up their little what is it, eighty eight percent pure white status oh. there with these little half breeds they're gonna make and leave behind. Because you know oh, the daddies God. ain't gonna get their deep money busy in Connecticut. Oh. Man. <clears throat> Well, let's get into this rider of the 21st century underground road. As we said, we don't have a north of freedom, but we do have some freedom. We're getting people out of prison. And this, we like to uh, give them a shout out every week and let you know that people are getting free, that they're not staying in there forever. Some have gotten out. This week's rider of the underground railroad is a brother by the name of Bobby Johnson from <laughs> New Haven, Connecticut, WFSB. A man who spent nearly a decade in prison for murder tasted freedom for the first time in nine years. Bobby Johnson, 25, had his conviction set aside, and he was released on Friday, according to his attorney. Johnson was sentenced to 38 years in prison for the 2006 murder of a 70-year-old Herbert Pete Fields. Police said Fields was sitting in his car in New Haven on August 1, 2006, when teenagers walked up to his car on West Ivy Street and shot him in the neck. Fields had been waiting for a woman he was dating. Kenneth Rosenthal, Johnson's attorney, said his then 16-year-old client falsely confessed that he was that he killed Fields. He also said that evidence showed that another individual committed the murder and had committed similar murders prior to Fields' death. To their credit, following disclosure of that information and a reexamination of the entire record, Chief State Attorney Kevin Kane, Deputy Chief State Attorney Leonard Boyle and a New Haven State Attorney, Michael <laughs> Deerington, have concluded that Bobby's conviction and continued incarceration is inconsistent with the principles of justice they are sworn to uphold and have exercised their discretion to set aside the conviction immediately. Rosenwald said in his statement, the exoneration proceeds took place at 10 a.m. in New Haven Court with Johnson, was originally convicted, and there he was freed. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you, Brother Bobby Johnson. Salute. Salute. Man. I'm glad you took over that segment, Max. I know you do a lot of the, of the reading and commenting and leading us into the commentary on these stories and what have you. I just had to think to myself while you was, you know, reading, like, I probably would have been and dropped a few F-bombs during <laughs> <laughs> During reading that, man, I I don't know what I'm gonna do about about this. I, I it just I can't stop it from upsetting me, man. This is somebody's life. I see this. I was talking to some people even today about you know the the, the situation even with Trayvon Martin was brought up again. Like it's never gonna be what you want it to be. This is somebody's little kid, man. I have teenage sons and nephews. Any one of them come up caught up like a Trayvon, like a Mike Brown, like a Jordan Davis, like a whoever's poor child, dead and gone. And the story becomes how demonized he was, or like in this kid's case. I mean, caught up and thrown in the system and just demonized and life destroyed. I feel that with every one of these stories. It could have been easily could have been me. I came up in a time. It easily could have been me. I mean. Happened to my baby brother, man. It should have been me. Yeah. I know. I, I don't. I know. I escaped the bullet on a number of occasions. 
Yes. But it should have been me. I didn't expect to make it this far. I would have, if you'd have asked me when I was 18 years old, if I would ever be a grandfather, I'd have looked at you like you was out of your damn mind. I was like, I probably got months to live. Hmm. Man, so ignorant of what's going on back in the time when I was coming up. I mean, you knew what you was told. You know what they, they kind of told you what was going on or whatever and watch yourself and all that. But you still, it didn't click because, you know, you was being saved and grace was keeping you from getting totally snatched up and caught up and thrown in somewhere. But it could have easily been me, man. So, yes, I get worked up and I'd flip out and talk crazy or whatever because, man, I'm worried about my children. I had to ask a guy today, is it, do you think it would be the same way that you look at these situations if your little baby every day you legit told your daughter Every day you legitimately sat and told your child before they went out the door to go to school, look, you've got to go straight to school. You've got to come straight home. Stay on the sidewalk. Keep your eyes face forward, but keep your head on the swivel. Don't talk. Don't look. Don't go with no kids, no friends. Don't do this, 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 and this. Give them a hundred things on the list to do just so they can make it safely, you hope, just so they can get back home safely, you hope. And if something happened to them along the way, you don't have no excuse, and you ain't getting no justice. Just so people know, about 10 times a month now, an innocent person is freed from an American prison. They're exonerated sometimes after decades because of new evidence, new confessions, or the corresponding signs of DNA. This is every yeah. month. And this is with an understaffed, underfunded, small grassroots organization tackling this huge job. Yep. Yep. <sighs> Well, there you have it. Uh, I guess it's time for our next segment, uh, which will be us giving honor to our ancestors and to those who, even our lives today, were leading the way and have led the way in abolition, putting everything under the line, not just for their freedom, but the freedom of everyone who was enslaved and uh, suffered the abuse that we've seen in the 18, 17, and 1600s and that we see again now in 2000. So, uh, abolitionist in profile, brother Johanna? Um, yeah, Scotty, Scotty, do you still have a recording? No, I don't. Okay. You gotta give me a second on the music, brother. I thought we had, <laughs> okay. thought we had it recorded, I'm sorry. Yeah, I didn't right. have time to uh, record it. Okay, we good. Okay, we ready? Get it, Scotty. I'm ready. <laughs> okay, let me let me start it over. Uh, I gotta find it again. Give me just DJ Scotty Scott. Yeah, sorry, y'all. <laughs> Reverend Samuel R. Ward, spiritual abolitionist. Samuel Ringgold Ward was born on this date in 1817, Friday, October 17th. He was a black abolitionist and a minister. Born a slave on Maryland's eastern shore, he escaped with his parents in 1820. His father was described, was descended rather, from an African prince. He learned to read so that he could enjoy the priceless privilege of searching the scriptures and supporting himself as a house painter. His mother was widowed in a previous marriage and bore three children, all boys. Samuel was the second. Ward grew up in New York and was placed in a public school in Mulberry Street. In 1833, he became a clerk of Thomas L. Jennings Esquire, one of the most noteworthy of the African-American race. The same year, it pleased God to answer the prayers of my parents in my conversion. 
Moore's attention turned to the ministry where he was advised and recommended by the late Reverend G. Hogarth of Brooklyn. In 1839, he became an agent of the, of the American Anti-Slavery Society. Licensed the same year by the New York Congressional Association, he served as pastor to an all-white congregation in South Butler, New York from 1841 to 1843. His second pastorate from 1846 to 1851 was of a white congregation in Cortlandville, New York. While there, he was editor of an excellent newspaper devoted to the religious elevation of that denomination. Ward was very talented as an orator and educator of religion. He was nominated for two or three years as Liberty Party candidate for vice president of the United States. For his eloquence, he was styled the quote-unquote Black Daniel Webster. But in 1850, he criticized Webster sharply for his acquiescence concerning the Fugitive Slave Act. Ward himself became involved in the rescue of a fugitive slave in 1851. Then, during arrest, he fled to Canada. During his two years in Canada, he served as an agent of the Anti-Slavery Society of Canada and assisted the fugitive American slaves who had taken residence north of the border. In 1853, Ward went to England on a fundraising mission. During his two-year stay, he gave many speeches and published his life story, An Autobiography of a Fugitive Negro, 1855. In 1855, he settled in Kingston, Jamaica until 1860. He served as a pastor to a small group of Baptists there also. He later moved to St. George Parish, where he died in 1866. So New Abolitionist Radio salutes Reverend Samuel Ward. Salute. Salute, brother. Salute. <laughs> Going for vice president. Look at him. That's something, ain't it? Yeah, man. I'm over 40 years old. I just now learned that. They never taught me nothing about that in school. But we learned all the president's names, learned about the presidential campaigns, everything else. I never heard about this, brother. Hmm. If it wasn't for us, you probably never would. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Word, man. I, I love this part of the program where we honor our ancestors and bring their stories back to life to let people know that in every walk of life, we were fighting in every way we could. We were fighting. And we were all, unified, mm-hmm. not our color, but our freedom. And not along <laughs> religious lines either, because, you know, we right. hear that a lot. And I, I, I understand what they're saying, but Christianity or teaching the Bible to certain people didn't have the same effect. You know, because we hear that as a common criticism of, of black Christians is, oh, they're passive and. And, you know, the white man this right. and, and the white man that. But, you know, a lot of them brothers and sisters, you know, it didn't stop them from becoming abolitionists and being active in the fight. And they weren't just praying in their closets on their knees. They were actually out there in the fight. So right, this is just right. another one of those brothers. Right. The people that talk about that, they don't they don't know. I mean, that's the thing. Most people that are talking are doing just that. They don't know anything really that they've read and that that they've read they went and they sought that out strictly for the purpose of supporting what they already believed (laughs) they didn't go read something to go find something new they don't know any of these people that that led churches that that led entire faith factions in different states where we were marginally free back in the 1700s 1800s they don't know nothing about absalom jones they don't know anything about Richard Allen. They know about they don't Matt know anything Turner. About this pastor here, Henry McNeil Turner. They don't know any of these people. Right. But but then, you know, on the flip side of that, while I like also highlighting 
these brothers and sisters of the Christian faith that were abolitionists is to show the stark contrast between the black church then, even though he was, you know, a pastor over a predominantly white church. But, you know, to show then the black church was was a a stalwart within the abolitionist Mm -hmm. movement, whereas today, Man, don't get me started. Today they're 501c3s primarily with global followings and superstar, rock star cults. And all they're doing is making money off uh, people's uh, hopes and dreams. You got yeah. uh, it's it like uh, making 70 million a year just in publishing yeah. alone. Yeah. They're being trained by the government to handle uh, potential riots and to handle uprisings and to handle outspoken rebellious type of people to suppress that they're being trotted out after the latest uh, extrajudicial murder and put, and put on the podium next to the sheriff or the police chief and tell everybody to stay calm and don't worry about it so yeah i understand like scotty said i understand why people criticize we got, it we got one minute left guys i just realized it let's do oh, some quick sorry, last last statements for the evening and make sure you guys tune in next week and bring a friend don't come alone information and knowledge is power brother scotty um, he, um, just glad to uh be able to come on these airways for another week and give you another weekly episode of New Abolitionist Radio, and just trying to open up the eyes and free the minds of the people that think slavery was abolished in the in the 1865 or sometime thereabout. You know, and and just you know, we are facing a very old evil. In this country, man, we are facing a very old evil. And, you know, the thing about it is, is from this base of the United States, you know, this is the, the tentacles of legalized slavery is spreading out all over the world as these private prison enslavers seek to expand into other countries and indeed are already in other countries. G4S, the largest employer in Africa, employing Africans to enslave other Africans, you know, and whatnot. You got Geo Group taking over all of Australia's uh, private prisons. Now they're talking about moving into Brazil. You know, the, I think Brazil has, the, if not the largest populations of Africans in the diaspora and whatnot. So, look, people, it's not getting any better. It's getting worse. And so we need all hands on decks, all right? We need everybody on board to end 21st century slavery and human trafficking. You know, this is a very old evil. Uh, there was a civil war on it in this country, allegedly to end it. And all of those uh, casualties of that war were betrayed by the great re- deceiver by the name of Lincoln. Who knew that the 13th Amendment had an exception clause in it? He's a lawyer. He probably helped write it out, write it up. And so that was the the ceasefire agreement between the North and the South. You know, we're going to pretend like we've ended slavery, but really we're going to expand slavery through the prisons. Wake up, people. Wake up. Because we can't afford to stay asleep in slavery. Indeed, indeed. I'll just give a couple of dates. If this is something that's uh, in your area, then please, uh, you know, try to get out. I've got several invites always going on, so people wonder what they can do. Um, Definitely try to get out. We've got uh, 
event going on in New York, New York, January 1 through the 14th. They've been having a We Can't Breathe 2016 Occupy Justice, Occupy for Justice, uh, New York City to, uh, 2016. Um, so they've been uh, shutting down many sites throughout the city, New York City. I'll put a link on the uh, New Abolitionist Radio page so you can find that if you're in New York. That's definitely something. You know, you need to support. We're still supporting our brother Ramsey Orta, who was the man who filmed the uh, murder of Eric Garner, and the police has still been on his case ever since. He's going to court. I mean, as we speak right, well, not as we speak right at the moment, but day to day now, he's in, in criminal court, uh, 100 Center, New York, New York 10013. He's fighting for his freedom still. Just for filming Eric Garner, these people are determined to put this man in prison. Uh, tomorrow, our brothers with Free Alabama Movement, uh, Free Mississippi Movement, are going to be on Blog Talk. Uh, I really don't like to give Blog Talk a plug, but this is for freedom, and I believe in these brothers, so I'll put a, a link to that up also. Um, so we're just trying to keep people involved and engaged and, and understand, you know, it's going to take a never-quit, never never-say-die attitude out of all of us to, to end this evil. Uh, peace to the abolitionists and death to the oppressors. I guess I'll keep mine simple. Um, I love you. That's why I do this. I love my children. I love my grandchildren. I don't want to see them go through what we've all been going through. It's time for a change. And I know one thing above all others, that abolition is the reason for a revolution. So we can finally know some peace. Peace. I started in slave ships. There are more records of slave ships than one would dream. It seems inconceivable until you reflected for 200 years ship sailed carrying non-violent. In the face of the violence that we've been uh, experiencing for the past 400 years, it's actually doing our people a disservice. In fact, it's a crime. It's a crime. Here come the drums!